Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code ARCPODNETFEED at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code ARCPODNETFEED at liquidiv.com. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You have my sword. And you have my bow. And my trowel. Hi, you're listening to episode five of And My Trowel, where we look at the fantastic side of archaeology and the archaeological side of fantasy. I'm Tilly. And I'm Ash. And this is the second part of our discussion with David Ian Howe. Yay! Hi. <laughs> How are you <laughs> Thanks for joining us again. And we are chatting all about werewolves. So let's just remind ourselves of where we were before we were very rudely interrupted by that bar fight. So we've been digging at a gravesite. One of the possible interpretations is it's a werewolf pack burial site or something. But the question remains of kind of how would you actually classify this according to kind of standard archaeological classifications? Before we move on, Tilly, it would be really interesting to hear about David's experience of archaeology back in the real world. True, um, true. I think it would probably help us give us a, give a clue how to handle this situation um, and to get to know David better as well. That's a very, very good point. Sure. So, who are you, David? What, what do you do? <laughs> what is your specialization? How did you get into it? Every day when someone's like, this is David, he is a, I have no idea what to say, but I just, anthropologist, is, sorry, I was stretching. Anthropologist <laughs> is what I would go with. Um, <laughs> but uh, instead of like traditional academia, like I still work on papers and stuff, but I just started doing content creation because I wanted to uh, not be Bill Nye, but I just thought that was like a niche that archaeology does not have. And I figured... Mm-hmm. I just get stoked on anthropology and wanted to, to talk about it. So that's what I do. But my main focus in graduate school was hunter-gatherer archaeology, studying stone tools and human ecology. And that ecology and studying tools kind of led to me looking at dogs in that same way and as a technology. And it kind of just went from there. And people like dogs. And here I am. <laughs> Amazing. So what are you working on right now? I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to work on several videos that I have half scripts written for for a year and a half now that I'm like, I'll get to it. And then I just end up not posting anything. But my latest thing, I just did a podcast with Donnie Dust to post that this week. And then I just did like, a big, long trip to the woods and like made a shelter and like a axe out of stone and everything. And I'm making a, I guess it's a spoiler, but I'll tell you guys like... <laughs> I just yeah, like, like it's fine. <laughs> <sure>. <laughs> this kind of ties into the, the question you're about to ask. I looked at it like if you're an alien observing like a human making of like as all primates make nests or all apes, I should say. So like you're observing a human and a, and a domestic wolf, like making a nest together in the forest. And it like has all this cool, like Terminator, like reticles on it, like explaining like the species names and things. And I, I, went, I had fun with it. This is a video that's coming out soon then? Yeah. yeah I'm <gasps> trying to finish it. Wow. Oh, I mean, if it can come out in time for this podcast episode, that would be 
brilliant because uh, my goal is to have it done by this friday which is is it the 19th right now so hopefully yeah. oh yeah definitely then this this i think this episode will be released oh actually it's just been it's just been halloween so uh this is very a period appropriate shall we say um for, for this time of year talking about oh wow we're, and, we're a month out cool yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about david we're right on time we're, <laughs> we're recording live right now <laughs> but, um, yeah. and and so dogs i mean like you say everybody loves dogs but what do you find why why did you get into it what do you find most exciting about that kind of topic or that area of specialization i just grew up with dogs my aunt was a vet she always like brought like dogs home that no one wanted so just had a bunch of dogs like in and out through my life loved them and then when i was in archaeology class in my undergrad we got like a new family dog and or like my parents did when i go home to visit they had it but um yeah it just made me fascinated with dogs and then thinking about wolves and i saw a history channel show actually when history channel was decent <laughs> about like the story of mankind or something like that and they talk about uh, the birth of humans and then the ice age. And then the third thing they talk about is wolves and like dogs. And it's the oldest technology or oldest domestic animal, I should say. And I would consider domestication a technology or a technological process. Mm-hmm. And because dogs can, uh, well, one, just the, not the kinship or the fellowship we have with them, but just the, the fact that we got, so humans are the biggest, meanest predators on the planet for sure. And then you get to Eurasia and all these wolves who are also were top predators just kind of threw their hands up and like, we're not going to deal with this. So they just became dogs. <laughs> but in that sense, they like I mean, won the like... evolutionary game. <laughs> yeah. I would too. <laughs> yeah. Hand fed by people and stuff. So they're, they're doing just fine. And I find that fascinating about dogs, but the major thing doing all this research is, yeah, they're like a biotechnology, like you can have them hunt, you can have them guard, you can have them do all these things. But like, think about 10,000 years ago, you could whistle and you could herd goats, but like the little Boston Dynamics robots they have now that like walk on four legs, like fall over. (laughs) Like we had that stuff way back then. So I'm digressing, but yeah, I just found it fascinating that no one had talked about how in every culture there is some really cool dog mythology to do with the afterlife. And that just, I need to write a book on that at some point, but you know, one day I'll get time. Yes, you do. (laughs) (laughs) You've said it here now. You have to. Yeah. What's your plan for the future then? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. If I want to start making money on this stuff, it's probably the best route, but (laughs) Well, and I love that idea that you said of dogs being almost a technology. So, I mean, Ash, you're a you're a material culture specialist. Mm-hmm. What would be your your opinion on that? Would you agree, or would you say that's quite a hot take? Oh no, I I, I really agree with that. Actually, I've I've never really heard it put that way, but I actually I quite like it. Um, yeah. I think it makes sense, doesn't it? It is. It's a it's showing that humans have this cognitive ability to train animals, and it is part of domestic. Uh, domestic. I can't say that word. Domestic- Domestification. Domestic- Domestification. Domestication. Domestic. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Domestic stuff. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah, you can take them and and like genetically, essentially code them to do other things. Like you get a border yeah. collie, you get a a beagle. Like you can 
yeah, it's just like programming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are a tool, but they're also, and but they're also they connect to us in a different way as well than tools. I think. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, like, this I was going to take it back to because one of our first episodes was about we looked at object agency and the theory of object agency in relation to golems and how uh-huh. a golem is technically an object, but it's also is it just an object or is it a subject? Like, how would you classify that archaeologically? Um, and I'm talking okay. about the fact that objects can, you know, work back on people. So, I mean, how much of human society and the way that we've developed in the modern day was as a result of domestication as well? Like, it, one could argue that the domestication of dogs had way more of an effect, as mu- or as much of an effect on us as it did on the dogs. Uh, yeah, I could say, like, a lot of people said, like, we wouldn't have civilization without dogs, which I don't necessarily agree with because there's tons of communities that don't necessarily have you know ancient greek like civilizations and they have dogs just fine but i will say we would not have domestic animals like goats cows sheep without dogs and or at least not easily and you wouldn't have like it wouldn't you wouldn't be able to be a sedentary because dogs are like sentinels and can bark and they'll let you know when predators or invaders are coming and i I believe that plays a huge role because i guess every civilization that grew into something, I guess, quote unquote, complex, like they all had dogs. So, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the, in the Mesolithic, they had dogs, trained yeah. dogs as well, and they were buried with dogs. There's a lovely burial in, I think it's in Sweden, and it's a lone dog burial with one red deer antler. And strangely enough, that is the only object buried in the whole cemetery. So all the humans don't have anything with them, but the dog does. And I think that's really cool. (laughs) It tells you a lot. Yeah, that is cool. Like there was just, whether they like loved it and gave it a toy or whether it like meant something significant, like spiritually, like it's still, they gave it something. The the antler is carved as well. So it's it's beautifully made and it doesn't, I believe anyway, I'll have to check, but um, I don't think it has much wear pattern on it either. So they were, it was made for burial. I mean, how do we know it wasn't a werewolf? (laughs) (laughs) We don't. Because we've just discussed this. (laughs) Like this is literally our scenario right now. <laughs> I feel like if it is a werewolf, though, then it puts all of David's research out the window. Hope <laughs> yeah. it's not. <laughs> yeah, technology backfired. Yeah, <laughs> it's actually just werewolves all along. Yeah. It's always werewolves. My favorite story about a dog burial is that one, and I don't know how. Much, I feel like it's real because I think that I looked up the paper about it as well. That they found like an example of a dog that had broken its leg and then it had been healed, so it had obviously been cared for, and that kind of showed that like dogs weren't just treated as. I mean, yeah, we say that technology but indeed they weren't just treated as workers they were also like part of the family even back in the sort of early neolithic uh, times which i thought was very sweet mm-hmm. yeah yeah oh, it's, it's fascinating to me oh. and so obviously we've talked about like all the positive things but would there be anything particularly frustrating or kind of difficult that you find about this topic that you've got yourself into in terms of dogs and humans yeah, though in terms of sort of the, the research theme, shall we say. Yeah, I guess just to, to be honest, a lot of political stuff with it, especially mm-hmm. here in the States with wolves. And then I don't mean to like, <laughs> like, it's just funny to me. The positive reinforcement training community, like dog trainer community is like, there needs to be a reality show where they all fight each other. <laughs> but 
the most aggressive people in my DMs are the people that preach positive reinforcement. And they're like, you should be teaching this. And like, how dare you not do it? And I'm like, all right, well, it's not positive. So. And positive reinforcement, <laughs> just, to, just to clarify, is like only saying, oh, good boy, and not doing anything negative. Or It's like just the Pavlovian, like give them a treat. Like you don't correct them. Like obviously you would never hit a dog, but mm-hmm. some trainers use prong collars. Some trainers use e-collars, which... Mm-hmm. In my opinion, some dogs need it. Other dogs, like, you could try your best not to use it. I mean, it's like humans then, I guess, right? Some humans probably <laughs> could do with it. <laughs> yeah, leash. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's the biggest thing in terms of, like, my social media stuff. But then in terms of just stuff I found out about dogs that through research, it's like most dogs were eaten for, like, a long time because it's a uh, just an expendable food source, mm-hmm. extra, and, like, like in Polynesia, they brought chickens, pigs, dogs, and stuff. So like if they had to eat something, the dogs were there too. But there's tons of like butchered and not, uh, I wouldn't say like completely like, what do you call it? Disarticulated dogs that are buried all over Asia and Europe and Africa. But they, just not to get like dark, but there's endocannibalism and then there's exocannibalism. And it's interesting that cannibalism extends to dogs as well. And if you have a dog that you revere, that was a great hunting dog, a lot of dogs are associated with magic. So you would eat that dog to like gain its power or to keep it as part of you. Interesting. And other groups, you would eat their dogs, you know, as just to, just to be a dick. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's a big insult. If you just eat somebody's dog. Oh God. (laughs) I'd be livid. So that's something I, I just found that, I, anthropologically, I find that fascinating, especially because if it's out of reverence, it's really cool in the Paleolithic. But yeah, and then just parasitic stuff. And although it is one of those things, indeed, that I remember. So I worked up in the Arctic a lot, and I was up there, cool. and I was trying on a the Inuit family that we were sort of working with a lot up there. The mum or sort of wife, she was an amazing seamstress. She made these beautiful garments, and she'd made this beautiful seal skin uh, coat because they do hunt seal for food up there. Um, it's like one of their main food sources. Um, and they also use the skin. They use the bone. They use everything. So it's not, you know, trophy hunting of seals. Sure. It's actual like, yeah, for sustenance. And uh, which, yeah, is uh, yeah, a whole other topic that I won't get into now. But basically she made this beautiful seal skin coat and the the fur, the lining of the fur was really soft. And I was like, oh, it's so nice. What What's this? This isn't seal skin. She's going, oh no, that's dog. <laughs> it's just such a but i guess yeah why not if a dog dies why don't you use the you know they're using the the materials to the best advantage that they could be used for and it just is such a bizarre concept because to me indeed i think the dog is you know uh, yeah in a bit of a different way (laughs) it was was a slightly odd reaction to have but yeah it, it makes sense thinking about it logically but like you wouldn't wear grandma's hair when she dies. No, yeah. Right. Weird. <laughs> somebody um, would. Somebody did. Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. For sure. Yeah. That stuff. It's fascinating to me. Yeah. No, it's all. Uh, yeah. It all sounds. All sounds very interesting. All sounds very promising for the future as well. I think let's uh, raise a toast to your work. And oh, uh, we're, we're out of drinks. Maybe um, hang on. Give us a minute, everyone. We'll be back in a sec. We just need to refill our glasses. Welcome back and cheers, everyone. So. Uh, We've yes, we've covered we've covered wolves and dogs and and that kind of thing a little bit more in this episode. But let's go back to what we were talking about last episode and this situation that we were in, where we had a potential werewolf burial. So, I mean, the reason that we kind of started this podcast is to 
think about how we would look at archaeology, I guess, through the investigation of kind of fantasy elements. And I think that we've already talked quite a lot about that, actually, in both of these episodes. We've talked about hunter-gatherer nomadic ways of life and settlement patterns. We've talked about deviant burials. We've talked about all kinds of things. (laughs) Yeah. Another way that I was thinking that we could look at werewolves is also something that we kind of thought about a little bit before. The closest official theory that I could find was perspectivism and the kind of animal human dichotomy, uh, I mm. guess you would call it. But what is that? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Thank you, because I was about to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a few notes from the scrolls. So according to the Wikipedia definition, perspectivism is perception of and knowledge of something are always bound to the interpretive perspectives of those observing it. So basically how you interpret something is biased by your own experience, right? Which I mean, is pretty much the, the basis of all archaeological interpretation, I would, I would argue. So then perspectivism as applies to the relationship between humans and animals. And I have a very long quote here, which I'm going to try and paraphrase, which comes from the research paper, um, Cosmological Diexis and Amerindian Perspectivism by Eduardo Vivieros de Castro, which discusses the cosmology and the worldview of indigenous groups in South America. So basically, this quote, which comes from page 470, talks about typically in normal conditions, humans see humans as humans, animals as animals, and spirits if they see them as spirits. However, animals, that is predators, and spirits see humans as animals by prey. And to the same extent, animals as prey see humans potentially as spirits or as animals in the term of predators. So by that token, animals and spirits see themselves as human. This is their kind of logic of reasoning. So they've sort of become anthropomorphic beings when they're in their own houses or villages, so in their own habitats or characteristics of the form of culture. And we talked about that a little bit already about how humans and wolves are sort of similar. Um, Their food becomes human food. So uh, the examples they give are jaguars see blood as minoic beer, vultures see the maggots in rotted meat as grilled fish, etc. So they see bodily attributes, so fur, feathers, claws, beaks, as body decoration or cultural instruments. So this to see refers literally to percepts and not analogically to concepts. So by this, I mean how they are seeing the world rather than like theoretical things. So in sum, animals are people or see themselves as persons. This is kind of the the general idea that is trying to get be got across in this paper. It's all wrapped up in very academic language, I must say. So it took me a while to kind of work through it. But so it's this idea that the manifest form of every species is just a, an envelope, a clothing, which always will conceal an internal human form. So basically all animals are humans uh, in some way. And this is where the idea of kind of shamanism comes in uh, as well, which is something that I, I think we might talk about a little bit more in a second. And I also have another quote, which I thought encapsulated this point from The Fifth Elephant by Terry Pratchett, <laughs> which are, humans hate werewolves because they see the wolf in us, but wolves hate us because they see the human inside and I don't blame them. So that's deep. After all this, right? <laughs> He's a genius. What can I say? Um, but, uh, so a lot of a lot of theoretical description in there. Hopefully, it made a little bit of sense. So based on that, and and sort of going back to this idea of something that you mentioned a little bit before, David, that I that sort of the shamanism and the shape shifting side of things is is that something that is intrinsically bound up with with werewolves and, and how we see that kind of relationship? Would you say? Hmm. Um, trying to think of a an answer to that. <laughs> I guess, like uh, w- through my research, I've noticed that, like, especially in indigenous like mythologies or like 
don't like to use mythology, but in the in anthropological mythology, well, dogs are seen as non-animals, but they're also seen not as human. So they're their own category. Hmm, okay. And I've always found that interesting. Like even in like creation stories in the Maya creation, like the, the first forms of humans that were made of wood then mud their final form is corn um is um yeah which figured they cut each other open they probably knew there was no corn in there but i I, I don't know dogs like existed like the first versions of humans had them too before animals were created and and yeah it's just interesting so i guess like dogs and especially with them having to do with the afterlife with like anubis and Kerberos and all them there's some form of like they're there they're an in-between like a spirit and a, and a human and that's like where the shape-shifting might come from yeah. and a really good example is um it's not werewolves or lycanthropy but in japan the firefox browser the logo there uh-huh. it's called a kitsune and they also like if you saw a woman walking around alone at night you weren't allowed to approach her or it was dangerous too because she could be a shape-shifting fox I mean, and that's as great. you got, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wish everyone thought that. Yeah, a win for Japan. Yes, <laughs> but the more the fox, like I can't remember, like they have like levels, and they turn into like you know Gandalf the White and the Gray or whatever. Uh, but <laughs> the final form, they get this like little orb, or they get they grow more tails. It's like the Pokemon uh, Nine Tails. That's what that is. Pokemon, yeah, I was just yeah. So canids are always seen as some kind of shape-shifting thing. I, I find that fascinating. And I think it's because they have this ability to go between human and animal. Yeah, I think, and it's interesting because I feel like they often bridge a gap as well because we, I always take issue slightly with stuff like, you know, we do anthropomorphize animals a lot. I mean, we can't understand animals. We are human. So any, there's a big push, especially in the historical side of research at the moment, to kind of document animal history without human interference, which is extremely hard because we are human. And mm-hmm. therefore we see animals through ourselves. We can't see what a dog sees. We will never see what a dog sees or how they interact with the world. We simply know what we see. So maybe a werewolf or any type of mythological creature does actually bridge that gap between the understanding and, and the not. Hmm. Yeah, if we have it from so this idea of perspectivism, so that that knowledge of something are always bound up to how you would interpret it and you see it, then indeed if a werewolf, that would be a really fascinating a werewolf archaeologist would be great because they could see both sides. Yeah. Like can- ethno-lycanthropology, I guess would be that. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> you should You're do welcome, that. David. I've got your future. Uh, I'm going to buy that domain name right now. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. Stuff I've never thought about, so I can't really, like, speak too much to it. But, yeah, that's... uh. That's cool, because I guess, yeah, dogs can, as an intermediary, like, not that they can, like, talk to cats or whatever, but I I do notice, like, I'm at my friend's house right now, and the cat and the dog, like, interact better than I've seen most cats and dogs interact, Mm -hmm. and they just kind of, like, understand each other's space and will play with each other and stuff, and, but to what extent is that the same way we would play with a cat? Like, can they speak? I don't know. Well, there's an idea that cats just see us as little tiny kittens that are really helpless and useless. (sighs) 
Right? Isn't, Isn't that it? the whole thing yeah. that the only reason cats cats don't meow at each other, they only meow at humans because they see us as kittens. Like they yeah, cats will only meow at kittens or something. Yeah. Interesting. They That's why they you food because they're like, You're not eating, you pathetic mouse. <laughs> 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 Eat it. That is funny. <laughs> I think I, I know in Japanese folklore it's like cats are gods in like cat form and they just like are stuck with people and they're like uh <laughs> these things I mean, that's really interesting actually to see that difference between how dogs are rep- like dogs are sort of the companions the ones that lead us the ones that guard the ones that you know whereas cats are just the gods like they're they're so far removed yeah. from us and they're like everything and it's sort of so yeah. we'll never understand cats they must be gods right. <laughs> and like I'll, I'll pet my roommate's cat and like a minute later like she likes it and then a minute later or not even a minute later the moment i move my hand she aggressively like licks her fur where my hand was and uh, so, sorry sorry if my oil smells <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think and and yeah. So so but so going back a bit to the so this idea so that that how how do we actually interpret animals? I mean, you could argue that indeed we can't interpret animals almost in a similar way to how can we? How much can we really say about people living, however many thousands of years ago as well? How similar would they have been? And I found that really interesting actually. So we're in a book club, David, um, Ash and I, that we <laughs> called the Ash Book Club. Right we're going to plug our book club, which uh, it sort of started because we wanted to see how archaeology was depicted in popular fiction. So okay. we read a different book each month, and and it would always be related to archaeology, and then we discuss it and sort of how well it it actually mirrors real archaeological um, thing. And there's been some really good ones, but there's also been some quite disappointing ones. But one of them was called Cafe Neanderthal by Bibi Barami, and I found a really interesting point that was mentioned in is this idea that uh, when you're talking about Neanderthals, they are completely separate species. So actually, we indeed, this sort of anthropomorphism, whatever, Asian, I can't say that word, um, that Ash is talking about with animals, we almost do the same thing with other human species. But actually, how much can we say about, you know, uh, this idea of perspectivism? How much can we really say about other human species? But also similarly, how much can we say about human species, like our species of human that was living hundreds of thousands of years ago as well? I know that, for example, in Scotland University, that was something that was really drummed into us all the time, is that like, we can never know what they were thinking, and we can never really understand them. I don't know if that's something similar in in American anthropology. Is that something that's kind of pushed? So to, if I'm hearing what you're saying, like, getting into the mind of like an ancient hominid yeah um yeah i i think though i mean evolution's a whole a whole thing here <laughs> but like right, yeah. the, the way we kind of it's taught it's just like you came from a chimp to like what we are that classic like evolution picture like the ape to man mm-hmm. so it's kind of taught us that and like you just think the people before us weren't people but in my in my mind, I think we talked about this last time. Like, if you flint nap, so Homo habilis, Homo erectus, you have to speak. Like, you have to be able to explain like what a Hertzian cone is, and like you know how the how to fracture, how to flip it, how to how a bifacial reduction works. You, maybe you can do that through grunting and pointing. I don't know, but if you are taming fire and you're walking all the way to basically Australia, Homo erectus had speech. Yeah. So, in that sense, did they have? religion or like a spirituality i i don't know but i do know they had conversations like they would have had to mm-hmm. 
Well, I guess actually, I don't do now, but it's better than I guess. <laughs> That's like the very like basic of what is human. You can communicate. <laughs> that, that's it in, in many circles, but mm. it necessarily it doesn't really fit either at the same time because it's quite an outdated theory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the ability to pass culture, I guess, would be the thing. Um, but but I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, even past people, right? The, yeah, they had a very different system, society, different life ways and how them, how we do and different values. But we can at least understand how they viewed the world in a way, like how they yeah. saw the world. Like literally, I mean, literally seeing it through your eyes. Hmm. Dogs, we don't see even the same color spectrum. <laughs> Right. That's, that's very difficult. How do we even understand what a dog is, what it is to be a dog, if we are not dogs ourselves? Like yeah. <laughs> There's a, like the mirror test that they can do with humans, apes, elephants, dolphins, whales, and I think magpies. They can see themselves in a mirror and recognize that it's them. Mm. They're self-aware. Mm-hmm. But dogs and cats don't pass that. But then someone brought up a point at a conference I was at. It's like, yeah, but like they don't use vision. They use their scent. So they can smell their own scent. They Therefore, they are. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Now, therefore, I am. <laughs> so, right. so, yeah, they, like we just have a human centric, like, I guess, homo centric, homeocentric view, anthropocentric, there you go, yeah. view of the world <laughs> yeah. through our parallax eyes and stuff. But that, other animals don't use sight the same way so so i guess then what we've worked out based on our learned scenario from the start of the last episode was that actually we need a werewolf archaeologist to come and help us interpret this site because there's no way that we would be able to actually interpret it would that uh, would you agree yeah Yeah. (laughs) I i would just say the I kind of want to say this before, but I forgot when I was going to bring it up. But to, if I would immediately look at it and be, okay, it's quadrupedal. It has hair, so it's mammalian. It is, you know, it has non-retractable claws, so therefore it is a carnivore or a canif- caniform. And then, you know, go from there. And what kind of dog, wolf, coyote, werewolf, I don't know. You'd have to do genetic <laughs> testing. Yeah. But then the genetic testing would reveal that it's, you know, ape. <laughs> so I don't know. Confusing. No. I think we could probably find an archaeologist werewolf in this tavern. Too. Yeah, right, right. We'll, we'll go and ask ask around for a little bit. But uh, unfortunately, uh, I see that our time is nearly up. So I think that that is about it for this episode of And My Trowel. We hope very much that you enjoyed this quest. Thank you so, so much, David, for helping us out with this particular tricky problem. It was really great to have you join us. And uh, I think we've definitely learned a lot. Yeah, we, uh, we rolled a d20 on this one. So. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily I was in charge of the dice, so <laughs> you two didn't have to count. <laughs> and as always, if there's any suggestions that people have for an episode, maybe you've gotten something from a fantasy book, maybe there's an archaeological concept similar to perspectivism that you don't really understand that we might be able to explain through fantasy, maybe there's something you read in a book that you want to find about from an archaeological viewpoint, whatever it is, get in contact with us via email or social media, all of our contact info for both us and for David, as well as references and further reading for all of the points that we've discussed today can be found in the show notes. 
Also, don't forget, if you're an APN member, you can join the APN Slack team for exclusive behind the scenes chats with all podcast hosts, including David, who has his own podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network, A Life in Ruins. Do check that out and uh, check out the podcast website to find out more information. Is it me or is there suddenly a lot of trees outside and there wasn't there before? Yeah, you're right. Hmm. We might we might need to enlist some more help for this next one. Don't worry, I'm on it. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. And was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.